Welcome to the A Fire podcast. Now streaming on Apple, Google, Spotify, and more. So much is changing so fast. You know, I used to say that a lot um, several years ago um, and meant it because it was, it was pretty accurate when you think about it. Wow, I have a phone that fits in my pocket. Wow, I can connect to anyone on the internet. Uh, wow. But there was also, oh my gosh, we've got global terrorism. Oh my gosh, we've got environmental degradation. I mean, there were goods and bads, and it pushed us around a lot back in the day. Today, it seems like it's going even faster. And it seems like it's even harder for us to figure out exactly what direction things are going. I mean, from moment to moment in the last several months, any of us have probably said something to the equivalent of, well, office is dead. Office won't come back. Or, oh, office is great. Everyone's coming back, usually within a few days of each other. We're seeing a lot of that. We're seeing a lot of people bouncing back and forth, not knowing exactly what they believe and having a thesis here, a thesis there, and very little data to uh, back it up. So what is going to happen next? That's a really hard question. And that's why I'm especially glad to have on the program today Paula Campbell Roberts. Uh, she is the economist and managing director of Global Markets, Balance Sheet, and Real Estate Americas at KKR, um, and is particularly good at threading through the noise and the chaos to figure out what's actually going on. So thank you, Paula, for joining us on the AFIRE podcast. It's really a pleasure to be with you again, Gunnar. Uh, thank you for the compliment. Uh, it really is such a dynamic world that we live in today where you, you know, one statement like that, cities are dead or remote work will take over. Um, from one day to the next, the market feels very differently about it. And, you know, certainly focusing on underlying data is part of sort of our secret sauce because uh, I, I think the aggregate data sometimes, you know, hides what's actually going down, going on beneath the surface, uh, but wholly agree with your your overall overall stance. So how do you kind of fight against that, if you will, or fight against that instinct uh, to, to, to grab something and go, okay, this is what's happening? Um, how, how do you and your colleagues kind of think through these environments of volatility? Uh, I'd say two main approaches help us do that. One, we benefit from working at a firm that is global, multi-asset class, has individuals, you know, in different sectors. So if you're sitting in real estate and you have a point of view, well, it also behooves you to give someone a call in private equity or see if the same thing is occurring in Europe or in Asia. So I think that's one benefit uh, and one way that we try to overcome that, um, as well as talking to experts and colleagues on the street all the time. Um, the second is being very data oriented, right? And being data driven, which is what, what I started to mention, where if you just focus on the headline, oh, X million people left New York in the middle of COVID. Um, well, if you peel back the onion and look at who left, where did they go? Why did they go? it actually paints a very different 
picture. So we seek to sort of paint that picture connecting different nodes from surveys and hard data and interviews to really paint a more fulsome picture. And that's how we hopefully try to cut through some of the noise and, and identify some of the signal that's out there. Excellent. And and I think anything that you can cut through the kind of fear-driven imagery that we have, I, I think the word they were using in the press and elsewhere was exodus. It's like, oh my goodness. Yeah. I mean, that that's, that's about as big an image as you can possibly come up with. Uh, as you imagine, New York and San Francisco emptying out of people neither of which was true, um, but there was some shifting and the shifting is, is what's important. Um, so where are we right now? So, what, what, you know, you, you talked to us back in, uh, I think it was in February and, and had some really great insights about where the markets were going. And obviously February is like, you know, a century ago. What's happening now? It is. I actually mark uh, March as a bit of a turning point in many of these trends where you've seen the reversal we anticipated actually start to take place. And so if I start with the theme you mentioned around exodus or de-urbanization, um, I'd say clearly, you know, a year ago, we did see uh, a number of people leave New York City and San Francisco and why wouldn't you? If if offices were closed and you knew they were going to be closed for three or six months, why would you stay in a city where you couldn't go to a restaurant? Life was really different from what you had experienced. So many people took advantage of that. But when you look at, you know, postal service data or conduct surveys, what we realize is that many people actually left for the exurbs and suburbs around those urban areas, right? So in New York, people went to Long Island and they went to Brooklyn and they went to New Jersey or upstate, San Francisco similarly, right? And so it became uh, clear to us that much of that is probably short term, right? Right. The other uh, departures that we saw were continuations of what we had seen before COVID. So tax-driven departure, right? People were already leaving because there were lower uh, tax opportunities in like a Florida or, or a Texas, for example. So that happened, but that wasn't the majority of the departure. And then I'd say a third bucket were millennials with families, right? Who took advantage of this time to move out again to the suburbs and exurbs. But what you began seeing in March of this year, as you know, given the success in the US in controlling the virus and, and ramping up vaccinations, um, you've actually seen those cities start to rebound. So mobility is up. If you were in New York uh, over Memorial Weekend, it felt like nothing had changed. You know, you're stuck on a bridge, stuck in traffic, difficult to get a restaurant reservation. Um, so things are largely coming back to normal, which is what we anticipated. The interesting thing about it is there is a uh, sort of a bifurcation in uh, the recovery process, even in the U.S., between a New York and a San Francisco versus cities in the Sun Belt, for example. So Certainly, we're seeing New York and San Francisco recover, but it's it has lagged what we're seeing in the Sun Belt. So mobility is much higher in the Sun Belt than we're seeing in New York and, and San Francisco. I expect to see New York and San Francisco return to more pre-COVID normals, uh, likely by Labor Day in the fall. Um, but it's interesting, again, to see that the different paces of recovery across the country. As you look forward regarding COVID and recovery from it, um, how do you anticipate the next 
uh, 18 months playing out then, uh, since there are still some uncertainties there as well? Sure. Um, so I, I'm actually quite bullish on the second half of uh, the year uh, for a number of reasons. You know, we have benefited in the U.S. from strong stimulus, which is only set to, you know, continue from an infrastructure perspective. Um, with that, uh, you know, even if you if I step back for a second, the, the growth we've seen thus far has been quite uneven. So while I'm talking about a recovery, you know, as I've just mentioned, markets are recovering at different paces. If you look at em employment, there's some sectors or some cohorts that are still unemployed while others have remained gainfully employed and benefited from stock market growth. So that unevenness is what has characterized the past year. What I expect in the second half of the year and going into next year is for growth to become more even. Right. So that uh, employment in low wage sectors and medium wage sectors will start to recover at a faster ramp than we've seen uh, thus far. So looking into the second half where we have more cities uh, opening, we have more you know, continued fiscal stimulus, employment improving, services recovery, all of that bodes well for a very strong second half headed into next year. Specifically on the infrastructure bill, um, which you know continues to kind of move through its 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 painful process, um, two trillion dollars uh, going into a whole swath of projects, all of which benefit uh, communities, cities in a lot of ways in terms of new development, new construction, all sorts of new things happening. How do you see it specifically impacting the real estate sector? It's a great question, and it's one that we're real time analyzing um, as we speak. You know. Firstly, clearly it's a very bold and ambitious package. Not all of it will likely ultimately get passed. But as it concerns real estate, I think there are a number of, um, uh, of, of attributes of the, of the proposal that could impact housing, for example, and that's an area that we're focused on. So be it um, you know, affordable housing or subsidies for down payments or, or any, any of the like, that could actually, um, the way we think about it, impact that sort of rent buy decision, which of course um, is very relevant for our multifamily decisions or even just you know, general health of a city. What I think that means you know, of, of the proposals that will ultimately get passed, I do think that owning a home on the margin becomes more affordable um, but when you add, when you, what mitigates that, however, is the fact that home prices have been increasing it, you know, and will continue to increase going forward at, at, at a good clip. Mortgage rates are rising. So on net, I still think, you know, rentership um, is, is still more compelling. But I think on the margin, it still becomes um, incrementally more affordable for mainstream households uh, going forward. We talked a little bit about remote work. We talked a little bit about office, but how do you think office, uh, in, in terms of how the assets themselves may evolve uh, over the next six months, based on what we've seen so far? And, and again, you know, it, it's been changing daily. But um, how do you think that's going to play out? I think it's quite a dynamic space, uh, for sure. Um, depending on the market, the industry, and the job function, the use of office is going to change. Um, you know, in the in the work that we've done, a hybrid model where you have um, more of an opportunity to work from home is likely going to be the case, and that will ultimately change the design of an office if you don't have employees 
always in the office, always using the same desk, more of a, you know, hot desk, um, flexible work option is likely going to going to take hold. So that, again, will change the design of offices on the inside. I think in addition, we're really in the middle of an ESG, um, you know, uh, a bull market for ESG, where both because of COVID and concerns about health, as well as long-term um, uh, concerns about uh, economic, uh, environmental impact, I think buildings are going to be, the, the importance of having a, a, a redesigned building, one that is eco-friendly, is going to become even more important. So that means both from an HVAC filt air filtration perspective on the health side, and also just making sure you minimize the impact that the, economic, the uh, environmental impact that a building may have. What that skews towards, of course, is newer buildings, buildings that have a, you know, a smaller carbon footprint, um, which again, uh, places a, a, a bit of a, a you know, negative tail, negative um, headwinds uh, for buildings that are older, for example, and, and, and don't have some of those, um, some of those features. So I think dramatic changes in office then going forward, both in how they are used and the, and the, the sort of structure and, um, and design of, of, of those, um, of those buildings. That suggests to me that it, it's anything but passive um, to own an office building going forward. I think you're going to have to be very flexible, very strategic. Now, every time for years, for decades, every time I've asked an investor, what are you worried about? Uh, top of their list or in the top three is always inflation. It doesn't matter how good inflation has been, at least over the last 20 years, uh, still, they've worried about it. They've stayed up at night and they've calculated around it and trying to figure out what's going to happen. Well, it looks like their their dark wishes are soon to be granted. Uh, what do you see uh, in terms of inflation and in terms of how one invests in that environment? For sure. I, I actually think that um, it is fair to be a little worried these days. I think we've entered a new regime with regard to inflation, where um, whereas for the past 10 years, the Fed has not been able to meet its mandate around inflation. I think we certainly will um, do so this year and probably have a sustained, uh, be in a sustained higher inflation, 2%, 2% plus inflation regime from here on in, which again, is very different from what we had experienced uh, before. And that's driven, of course, by the supply chain imbalances that we've seen. So the recovery and demand that we started talking about at the start of this conversation, outpacing available supply, climate change. So, you know, as we were talking about the future design of buildings, that increases costs, right? So demand for green inputs raises costs, costs and leads uh, to inflation. Um, and then with that demand recovery, what we're seeing already is higher auto prices, airplane, of course, construction costs. Um, so all of that is driving the inflation that we're seeing. The other area of inflation that I know is very worrying um, to business owners and operators is wage inflation, right? Where we're having actually labor shortages create challenges in sectors, especially that rely on low wage labor. So even without government intervention, you're seeing companies being forced to increase wages. So we, you know, we're seeing that with Amazon, for example, increasing wages 10%. Um, so there's a priority on that end to lock in labor at an attractive basis. So you know, all of that to say is there, there are reasons to believe we will have uh, uh, more modest inflation going forward, so 2% plus. Uh, I don't believe that inflation will become unhinged, however, because of the longer term factors we've been talking about for a long time, which is demographics and aging workforce, as well as technology 
both of which have the effect of putting downward pressure on inflation. So while, you know, this summer we shouldn't be surprised to see two and a half percent, I wouldn't expect to be, you know, above that or at that level for a sustained period of time beyond this year. Now, in in response to your question, Gunnar, with regard to how to position or how to invest in that environment, you know, I'd say we're lucky to be real estate investors at this time, because I think this environment is a bit of a Goldilocks environment um, for real estate in this sort of low yield, moderately inflationary uh, environment. And particularly in certain subsectors, real estate can actually serve as an effective hedge. So you think of hotels or rental housing that have daily or annual leases or industrial or office that have, you know, CPI escalators, all of those are, are, you know, do very well in this kind of environment. So where I'd focus, um, you know, I'd certainly uh, maintain or increase uh, uh, on my allocation to real estate during this time, but really think about portfolio construction, what sectors within real estate you're investing, invested in, I'd also think about construction costs, right? So are you buying assets below replacement costs and and what's your expectation for the trend in replacement costs going forward? I'd also think about wage inflation, as I mentioned, making sure that if you're, you know, invested in a hotel, how are they controlling uh, uh, costs with regard to union uh, wage labor, for example? And then, of course, um, thinking closely about liability management in terms of terming out debt and the like. Um, so all of those are factors I would be um, focused on. But overall, I think this environment is bullish for real estate, both in sort of a base case inflation environment or even if inflation rises above what most of the street thinks. So pretty good for real estate. It's great for real estate. And I think that certainly the story got around to the kind of the cross-border investors into the U.S. real estate market. First quarter, according to real estate capital analytics, uh, it looks like they're at the same level they were in 2019 in terms of a relative basis around 9% or so of the total investment. So there's there's a there's an enthusiasm, there's even an optimism uh, and our surveying is saying the same thing that there's just a, a genuine optimism not just from the US investors but from investors around the world, which leads me to the next question, which is essentially, what's the global picture in your mind? Uh, what should we expect? It's a little uneven, obviously. And, and you know, Europe is having some issues uh, coming back to life as quickly, although the UK seems to be doing better. Uh, but, you know, what do you see happening? For sure. Uh, you know, COVID is certainly put, taking a toll and has an impact on that uneven recovery by region. But overall, I think we're, we're constructive and have a, you know, as we term it, a risk on positioning across regions, but with an acknowledgement that um, each of the regions is at a different position um, of the economic cycle, with probably China um, uh, being the furthest along, followed by the U.S. and then Europe which to your point is is likely just exiting recession as it had a, a negative first quarter in terms of GDP, but our expectation is for growth to pick up um, for the remainder of the year. So, you know, we're, we're, we're overall bullish. I, I'd say that the U.S. is benefiting from a successful vaccination campaign, uh, economies therefore reopening. Um, what we have to be careful of in the U.S. is how much of that growth and expansion is already priced in. So being careful of what markets you're you're playing in. 
I think uh, Europe, we expect um, Europe to rebound uh, pretty strongly. But again, timing of or understanding the, the, the risk is really um, understanding how well Europe is really controlling the virus uh, to uh, COVID. Uh, to your point, different countries are at different stages. But assuming that happens, Europe should have a pretty strong second half and in, in, into next year. And then China, um, you know, appears to be farthest along in the recovery and has already begun tightening. So growth should remain solid. But again, there's an area uh, or a region or a country um, where valuations are already very high. So just being very careful about how you play that market. But overall, we're pretty constructive uh, globally. Given all that you're seeing, is there anything that's kind of at the back of your head, kind of scratching uh, on the door going, hey, I'm worried about this. This is something that we should watch a little more closely than we are. Is there anything like that? Or is it all awesome? (laughs) (laughs) It's never all awesome. (laughs) Someone would be lying to you if they said that. Um, I'm really curious about the evolution of employment post um, sort of this phase. I think it's interesting to see the labor shortages that we're talking about. I think most Analysts expect that by the fall, everything will return to normal. But I think, you know, something has happened to the psyche of the average worker who's now experienced six months at home, potentially with their children, seeing their wives or husbands for the first time on a regular basis, not traveling as much. And so what does that mean both for what it will take to get people back not just to the office, but just to working, right? One of the things we haven't talked about is the high proportion of women who have just exited the workforce, right? So how how much of them, uh, that cohort comes back? And so I think the labor adjustments that occur post-COVID are, is an area that I think about, and I, I don't know that the market is fully uh, focused on. It, I agree with you. I mean, and people don't realize that number of people in an office has an impact, just how many people are going to show up. Uh, we are a business based on density of human beings. And uh, there seems to be a de-densification kind of thing happening at the moment. It could change next month. <laughs> I don't know. But it, it does change the economics of a building um, and certainly of an entire downtown. I think that's kind of interesting. Well, okay, so what, what gives you hope? What's the Tinkerbell side of you kind of going, hey, this is great. Um, What is it that you're most excited about? Uh, I think the administration has made it clear that it's going to do everything it takes to sustain this expansion in the U.S. And so I, you know, both from a health perspective, from a supporting middle and lower income households perspective, I think that suggests that we should have, you know, at least several years of a of a solid expansion in the U.S., which of course is then bullish for real estate. So that that gets me very excited. Yeah. Um, of course, you have to be careful, and as I discussed during this conversation about timing and which markets and 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 sectors and the like. But overall, um, that's bullish for U.S. growth. So that that gets me excited. That's wonderful, and I I think that when I think about the process that we've gone through over the last year and we're continuing to go through that it seems to be a period of honest reflection, whether we like it or not. You know, we often don't like it. But you know, we're looking at what's happening, what we're doing, and perhaps coming up with different answers for ourselves and, and, uh, and for the communities and the businesses that we are in. Um, and I think it's I, – I, I love listening to you because you know, you're bringing so many different kinds of uh, 
points of, of fact, so many data points that not all of them are officially in the real estate column, not all of them are officially in you know whatever it is that we're supposed to talk about, but they inform our thinking. And I think the, those investors that uh, are uh, omnivorous in their in their data absorption um, are wow. That that was a even for me that was a pretty colorful way to say it all. But uh, that I, I, I think that <laughs> you agree, excellent. And that that, contrib that contributes, I think, to a better investment plan. Uh, it just if you're thinking that. That is the goal. And thank you for that, uh, Gunnar. It's always a pleasure uh, chatting with you and chatting with your audience. Well, thank you for uh, joining me on the AFIRE podcast. And uh, hopefully we'll, we'll get you back on the show next time. Would love to. Thanks, Gunnar. You've been listening to the AFIRE podcast. Remember to subscribe on your favorite podcasting platform, including Apple, Google, Spotify, and more. AFIRE is not engaged in providing tax, accounting, or legal advice through this podcast. No content included here is to be construed as a recommendation to buy or sell any asset. Some information, including the AFIRE podcast, may have been obtained from third-party sources considered to be reliable. AFIRE is not responsible for guaranteeing the accuracy of third-party information. The opinions expressed in the AFIRE podcast are those of its respective contributors and do not necessarily reflect those of AFIRE. To learn more about the AFIRE podcast, including under Writing guest opportunities, visit afire.org slash podcast.